Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. Every three months, the excellent and talented Peterson Toscano of Citizens Climate Radio sits in for me as host of Spirit in Action, and today's the day. Peterson packs so much into his broadcast that I could spend most of my time in passing the baton to him in describing the radio riches coming your way, but I won't. I will mention that Peterson Toscano is a theatrical talent of great merit, and you'll get to see him at work in his Tony Buffuzio from the Bronx comic sketch today. Of course, our site is nordenspiritradio.org, and we link to Peterson and so very many others out there. So the easy way to track down info is to follow the links from our site. If you're listening on any of the 38 or so stations that carry Northern Spirit Radio programs, remember to check our site to find links and post a comment and make a donation when you visit. One more note about Peterson's guest today. I'm particularly excited about the three evangelical Christians he's hosting because I believe that there's a great energy there and I'm thankful to Peterson Toscano for connecting us up to it for today's program. Over to you, Peterson. Well, thank you for having me back again. It's great to be here. We have a packed show. Later in the second half of the show, I will share my exclusive interview with Dr. Catherine Hayhoe. You'll also hear about a children's book that is out of this world. But first, we're going to have an exploration about faith and climate change. So what does the Bible say about climate change? Even among Christian denominations, there are a variety of ways of reading and interpreting the Bible. But today, we are going to hear from three different American evangelical Christians. My name is Kyle Meyerd Scott. Kyle is the national organizer and spokesperson for Young Evangelicals for Climate Action. He lives in the Midwest of the USA. We also hear from... Karina Newsom. After college, she worked as a zookeeper in Nashville, then brought a new message back with her to church. I tend to be very passionate about bringing issues of environmental sustainability to black churches. So like the church, churches that I've gone to, um, there have been times where I've had the opportunity to have an animal show at my church and talk about things like climate change or environmental sustainability, relating it, of course, back to their daily lives. And we hear from a pastor in the rural Pennsylvania town where I live. Josh Gibson, pastor at Emanuel Bible Fellowship Church. Reverend Gibson is not part of any environmental group and readily admits the tensions between folks who attend his church and climate advocates. Climate change will bring about in a lot of conservative evangelical circles, a negative connotation. It's because science and faith have definitely not gotten along, especially in the last century. So anyone who speaks against climate change is seen as as ignorant, ignoring science. Kyle, Karina, and Reverend Gibson each see their faith in Jesus as central to their lives. As a pastor and a believer, Reverend Gibson emphasizes a life fully committed to serving God. 
Sunday morning is not an event, but is a rallying point to respond then to God's Word together as a body in a way that makes a difference in our lives as believers to each other and also impacts the world around us. Kyle went to a church similar to the one Reverend Gibson pastors. I grew up in a community that loved and loves Jesus deeply, that is committed to the gospel, it it formed me deeply into a a person who cares about God's world, who loves Jesus, who cares about the witness of the church in the world. It was a beautiful community in a lot of ways. Kyle's church, though, grew suspicious when the topic of climate change came up. There was something mildly comical about it, that it was probably at best, just misguided, and at worst, a potentially nefarious scheme to to steal our money and diminish our freedoms. But something changed. While Kyle was still in high school, his older brother went off for a year of study abroad at a university in New Zealand. His brother came home changed. He had become a vegetarian. And in my head, I had a caricature built up of of anyone who would ever make that choice as hemp friendship bracelet weaving tree huggers who were throwing red paint on fur coats on the weekend. And and for my brother, who I loved and respected deeply to make that choice, it it caught me off guard and kind of gave gave me the choice of either lumping him into this caricature that I had built up in my head, which was painful, Uh, because I loved and respected him, or kind of suspending my assumptions and hearing him out. And and thanks be to God, I, I chose to do the latter. And in doing so, Kyle learned a new way of thinking about his earthly home and God's creation. The gospel is deeply connected to the way that we live on the earth and relate to the creation. A commitment to the gospel required taking that seriously. With this revelation, Kyle then went off to Calvin College to begin studies to become a pastor. After ordination, he served in a church for a time, but he felt a calling to a larger congregation. As a young evangelical, he wanted to bear witness to the changes happening in the world and how it affected his neighbor. As national organizer for Young Evangelicals for Climate Action, with a background in studying theology, he immediately launched into a sweeping overview of the Bible, a gorgeous sermon about God, stewardship, and creation care. And don't worry if you don't know the Bible well. With the help of voiceover actor Richard Bowen, I'll make sure you hear the relevant passages. I will also have resources for you in the show notes. Kyle makes clear there is not just one passage in the Bible that speaks to this topic. The thread of God's love for God's creation is woven throughout the entire story from Genesis all the way to Revelation. And so what I really like to do is is kind of take people on a journey from Genesis all the way to Revelation and make some stops along the way to to help pull out this thread. Fashion your seatbelts. We are going on a Bible journey. Genesis 1.26 Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, 
so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. What does it mean to be made in the image of the Creator? Of the Creator who creates and calls His creation good over and over and over again, even before humans are on the scene. Genesis 2.15 The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. We, we look at Genesis 2.15 where it says God, God took humans and placed them in the garden to avad and shamar it is the Hebrew, uh, which is most closely rendered to serve and to protect it. What does it mean to, to be tasked to serve and to protect the creation? Uh, and then we, we look at some of the passages in Leviticus and Deuteronomy when God is teaching God's people how to be his people. And some of the commands he gives them have to do with honoring the land and, and recognizing the land's need to have a Sabbath in order to honor God, as well as humans need to have a Sabbath to honor God, to let the land rest. All of the ways that God teaches his people to honor the land. We look at uh, the prophets who uh, command the, the people to seek justice for both people and the land because they recognize that their mutual well-being is inextricably bound up together. We look at Psalms like Psalm 19, Psalm 104, Psalm 24, and others that speak so beautifully about God's love for the created world for its own sake. God takes great delight in the creatures that God has made. Psalm 24, 1 and 2. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. For he founded it on the seas and established it on the waters. Psalm 104, 10 through 15. He makes springs pour water into the ravines. It flows between the mountains. They give water to all the beasts of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. The birds of the sky nest by the waters. They sing among the branches. He waters the mountains from his upper chambers. The land is satisfied by the fruit of his work. He makes grass grow for the cattle and plants for people to cultivate, bringing forth food from the earth, wine that gladdens human hearts, oil to make their faces shine, and bread that sustains their hearts. And then, you know, we jump to the New Testament where we look at the incarnation. What, is, what does it mean that, that God loves God's world so much that God takes on the stuff of his world? God could have achieved salvation in any way that God wanted, but he chose to take on flesh and blood and tendon and cartilage and continues to, to be incarnate. God has taken up the stuff of creation into God's own self. I, I can't think of a, a greater affirmation of the goodness of, of the world in God's eyes than to actually take on the stuff of that world in order to redeem it. Uh, we look at Colossians 1.15, where Paul says Christ was reconciling all things to himself, not just humans, but everything. 
We look at Revelation 21, where the, the curtain is kind of pulled back and we get a, a, a picture of where the, the world is headed, God's ultimate purposes for the world. We see the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven and a voice saying, look, God's dwelling place is among the people, not the people's dwelling place is with God, but it's, it's God coming down to the people and God saying, see, I'm making everything new. And the Greek word there for new means renewed, not brand new. Uh, and we see that God's ultimate purposes for the world is to join heaven and earth once and for all, not to suck up disembodied souls into an ethereal heaven. The created world has a role in God's good future and in eternity. And, and all of this kind of hinges on the, the passages in the Gospels where Jesus says the greatest commandment is to love God and to love your neighbor. The entire law and all the prophets are summed up in this. And Jesus, I, I like to think, has this thread in mind that runs through the Old Testament all the way through the New from Genesis to Revelation. That what it means to love God and to love our neighbor is to recognize this thread that runs through the story of salvation, of God's deep love for the world and his desire to reconcile all of it back to himself. Kyle raises three issues I want us to dig deeper into. Firstly, stewardship. Secondly, loving our neighbors. Thirdly, our relationship to the earth in light of heaven. Pastor Gibson and Karina also talk about stewardship. Stewardship of the earth is something that I've really started thinking about because for one thing, it, it disarms the idea. You talk of, you use the word environment. There's certain triggers and all of a sudden people think, okay, you know, he's, he's a liberal. Stewardship of the earth, stewardship is a biblical principle. But that doesn't mean that we're supposed to dominate it. Dominion is, is something that we are supposed to reflect how God would treat his creation. He's given us these resources to use them in such a, an over-abusive way. There's going to be consequences. We are stewards of it. So not only is it a gift and not only did God furnish this for us and provide this for us, if we destroy it, it's only going to hurt us. So we are responsible for stewarding this creation because if we allow it to become destroyed or become compromised, it's going to decrease the cleanness or the reflection of God that exists within it and ultimately will cause harm back to the stewards, back to us. For Karina, the idea of being a steward of the earth flows directly into loving our neighbor. There's no question that any, any church that I would go to, any Christian would agree with me, I'm sure, that we are to love our neighbor. Like they would agree that that is a principle that you, that you must abide by if you call yourself a follower of Christ. And stewarding the natural world is a reflection of loving our neighbor because when we choose to be wasteful or we choose to live in a way that is unsustainable, that creates waste, that creates degradation or causes degradation in the natural world, even if it doesn't affect us, it is affecting some other human being. People who live by landfills, people who live by Superfund sites, people who live in these extremely marginalized and vulnerable areas, they are the ones who are going to be reaping the negative effects of our lifestyle. You must do this if you love your neighbor. Karina points to Jesus' words in the Gospels. Did you go to the people in prison? Did you feed the hungry? Did you, you know, for, for these people who were in need, did you, did you act on their behalf to meet those needs? 
Matthew 25, 34-40 Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Finally, there is the issue of heaven. In the evangelical churches where I've worshipped, we sang and said, I've got a home in glory land that outshines the sun. This world is not my home. I'm just a stranger passing through. My real home is in heaven with my Savior. If heaven is our real home, then what is earth? A temporary shelter? A rental property? Where we bide our time before we come into our eternal inheritance? Kyle explains, God doesn't want to replace this earth, but renew it. Uh, So our home is the kingdom of God, which is not here yet, but it will be here on this renewed earth, forever joined with heaven. So I would actually argue that the assumption that our home is some disembodied heaven removed from this earth is much more found in Greek philosophy and Platonism than it's found in the Gospels. Karina speaks about the need for gratitude, gratitude for the home God has given us. And I think when it comes to my community, people of color, poor people, the, the, the angle that I would take would be that first and foremost, the natural world is a reflection of God's hospitality. It's a gift. If you were to walk into someone's house, they knew you were coming, they furnished it for you, they placed decorations on the wall, they painted everything, they gave you comfortable furniture, things like that, you wouldn't go through and just destroy it. I turned to Pastor Gibson, too, with this question. If heaven is the final home for Christians, and if God forgives us anyway for our actions, what difference does it make if we just trash the planet and move on? This mentality of, I'm saved, I'm going to heaven, turns us into just always looking in that direction and not always looking at our neighbor, not always looking at the earth, Because it's like, well, you know, I'm out of here. I'm good. Everything's good for me. Everything else can just burn for all I care. And that that mentality, like, oh, I'd never say that. But we act that way. Romans chapter 8, verses 19 through 21 states, For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. Pastor Gibson references 
this passage, and the strain on creation human sin has caused. He also points to resurrection and new life. And the Bible talks about how creation groans because creation itself has has this innate God sense. You can't see it, but that it's broken. In Revelation 21, Jesus says, Behold, I make all things new. And uh, I forget the name of the guy who said it. It might have been C.S. Lewis, but he, he, he pointed out how God didn't say he's going to make all new things. He's going to make all things new. So creation is going to have a resurrection, so to speak, just as Jesus did. Pastor Gibson reminds me how important it is in our life's work to have faith and perseverance. And you almost feel like you're, you're fighting a losing battle. If you're just fighting it for the sake of the earth, that can be very frustrating. But if you look at and see that there's one who is in control of it all, and as the Bible says, these are actually birth pangs. It's not death pangs. Um, when creation groans, it's like before a new baby is born. What the Apostle Paul is saying there in Romans 8 is that it may seem painful right now and things may look broken and, and beyond repair, but don't lose hope because this is just the beginning. And for those who are in Christ, the new baby, so to speak, is this new heavens and this new earth. You may not be an evangelical Christian yourself, but I hope this conversation helps you better understand the evangelical worldview. Feel free to share this episode with friends and family who read the Bible and look to it for guidance. This episode may deepen their understanding and challenge their faith. Now, it is time for the Art House. Shedding light on an old story, we hear from Tony Bafuzio from the Bronx. Tony is one of my own comic creations, loosely based on my dad, Pete Toscano. Tony wants to weigh in on the question, what does the Bible say about climate change? This is Tony Bufuzio from the Bronx. How you doing? So, yeah, you know the story about Joseph and his brothers? You know, Joseph with the um, with the coat of many colors, the technicolor dream coat. You know, this is a story about climate change. No, really, listen, listen, it does. All right, so Joseph, he somehow lands in Egypt, and, 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 and then he's in jail. I'm not sure what happened, why he got in jail, but he's in jail. It doesn't matter, because the important thing is all of a sudden, Pharaoh, the big guy, he starts having these dreams, these weird dreams about cows. And Grandma Bofuzio always said, it's never good if you dream about a cow. No one could interpret Pharaoh's dream. They haul up Joseph because apparently he's good at doing dreams. And Joseph says to the Pharaoh, so what's your dream about? So Pharaoh tells Joseph the dream. Like in my dream, there are these cows, these seven beautiful, fat, sleek cows. They're coming up out of the Nile River. But then they're followed by these seven scary, skinny cows who all of a sudden attack the good cows, the big cows, the fat cows, and eat them up. I wake up in a panic. Joseph, what does it mean? Armed with this data, Joseph predicts climate change. 
Yeah, a temporary regional climate change. He says, Pharaoh, those cows represent years, 14 years. There's going to be seven years of plenty. Anything you put in the ground, it's going to grow like crazy. It's going to be followed by seven years of famine. So he predicts climate change. And then he comes up with an adaptation plan. He says, if we know this is going to happen, we should do something, right, to look after the people. So he says, during those good years, grow as much as humanly possible so that during the lean years, we got food for the people, which is a very thoughtful thing to do. And that's exactly how it happened. They put Joseph in charge, and there was the seven years of plenty followed by the seven years of famine. And in fact, it was during those seven years of famine that Joseph got reunited with his family. They were hungry. They heard there was food in Egypt. They came as climate migrants. And it was a wonderful story in many ways because people ate. And I don't know. I don't want to, like, critique a Bible character. But, you know, I actually got a little bit of a problem with Joseph's plan because it worked. It was effective, but it wasn't really fair because to get this food from Pharaoh, you had to pay for it, and it wasn't cheap. So the first year of the famine, the people came. They brought their money. They bought the grain. The next year, they didn't have any more money. And they're like, now what, Joseph? He says, it's not a problem. Pharaoh takes other forms of payment, and he took livestock. Next year, we got no more livestock. We got no more money. Now what? Well, what about your land? How about you give your land to Pharaoh? And uh, you can still live on it, but, you know, Pharaoh gets a percentage of everything you grow. The next year, Joseph, we got nothing else to give Pharaoh. Yeah, you do. Actually, you got your children. How about you give your children to Pharaoh? Now, we won't call them slaves because that's not politically correct. <laughs> Sorry, kids. You know, we got all got to eat, right? The next year, Joseph would die in here. We need food. We got nothing. Oh, yeah, you got one other thing. You got your own bodies. How about you give yourselves to Pharaoh and you be his servants? So Joseph's plan, sure, it worked, (laughs) but it wasn't fair. It led to oppression. It led to slavery. It led to Pharaoh owning everything and everyone. (laughs) You know, and to me, I don't know, a faithful response to climate change is one that makes the world a better place for everyone and not just a couple of fat cats at the top. To me, a faithful response to climate change is one that it's filled with love, right? Like, not greed, but love. To me, a faithful response to climate change is really thinking through our consequences so that we can come up with plans that in the end, they're a blessing. There is lots more ahead. Coming up next, my exclusive interview with Dr. Catherine Hayhoe and a children's book that takes on climate change in a beautiful way. We'll be back to today's guest host, Peterson Toscano of Citizens Climate Radio in just a moment. But I want to remind you that NorthernSpiritRadio.org is the website where Spirit in Action is hosted as are the other programs, Song of the Soul, Citizens Climate Radio, Cool Solutions, Everyday Nonviolence, and more. Just a few of the riches on the NorthernSpiritRadio.org website. Of course, we have links to all these incredible guests, so we are your one-stop, track-em-down source. It'd be a pity, however, if you didn't post a comment when you visited and let us know that you're listening and caring and maybe even passing on new leads to us. 
or maybe clicking on the donate button to make sure this program continues because we're depending on you, not corporations or government sources, for the support for our full-time work. We're so thankful for all of the community radio stations across the country, some 38 of them, carrying our shows and keeping the sources of news and music open wide and flourishing. In case you can't tell, I'd strongly recommend you start your donation off with a gift of money or your hands to your local community radio station. And that includes our newest affiliate, WXPI in Williamsport, Pennsylvania. Make sure they thrive. Helping us to thrive is what Peterson Toscano does through his Citizens Climate Radio programming. So I'll now hand the mic back to Peterson for the second half of Spirit in Action. Dr. Catherine Hayhoe is such a bright and essential presence in the world today. She is a climate scientist, a professor in the Department of Political Science, and director of the Climate Science Center at Texas Tech University. She's also a brilliant climate communicator and the host of the Global Weirding web series. Dr. Hayhoe is highly accomplished and terribly busy teaching classes, doing research, public speaking, and I imagine occasionally sleeping. As someone trained as a volunteer lobbyist to lawmakers and other busy people, I began our interview by asking Dr. Hayhoe, how much time do we have to chat today? Um, I really do have a hard stop in 25 minutes, if not 20. Okay, we'll be done in less than 20 minutes. Okay, let's do it. Um, You keep popping up all over the country at conferences and climate events. How on earth do you also do your research? Well, doing a lot of the outreach that I do has affected my research, unfortunately, in a bad way, because I don't have enough time to write all the papers and do all the studies that I want to do. And in fact, I usually end up doing those between about midnight and four in the morning, because that's the only time that I have nowadays to just focus and concentrate. Um, But I would also say in a positive note that the research I do is very influenced by the engagement that I do with stakeholders. So with water managers and farmers and producers and city planners, they often have questions for me, very specific technical questions that I can't answer. So I go back and I do the research to answer those questions. One example is the most recent study that we just published a few weeks ago, which looked at what we expect to see happen to drought patterns here in Texas in the summer during the growing season. Up until now, Um, the results have been kind of inconclusive. We know that we get droughts. We know that those droughts are likely to be stronger the warmer it gets because our evaporation rates speed up. But we actually went and did a study that showed that the high pressure systems that we get camping out over our region during exceptionally dry summers in the past are likely to get more frequent and stronger as a direct result of a changing climate specifically driven by warmer temperatures in the Gulf of Mexico. So we didn't know that until I started to talk to people about water issues in Texas and people started to really want some answers for what we expect to see to happen. So we went out and we did the research and now we have an answer. I heard you speak at the Citizens Climate International Conference in Washington, D.C. back in 2015. And your talk has really influenced this show a lot. You made it clear back then that most people don't need more science when it comes to climate change. We need to focus on common ground. 
And as a result, <laughs> I've not had any other scientist on the show besides you. So in regards to climate communication and the science, what's changed since 2015 and what remains the same? <sighs> One of the biggest myths that we've bought into when it comes to a changing climate is the myth that it doesn't matter to me. And for a long time, we climate scientists had to address this through showing what was going to change in the places where we live. But today, we don't have to do that anymore. We can talk about what is actually happening today. And that is the greatest strength of the U.S. National Climate Assessment, which was just released recently, because it brings this down to the local level where we live. The fact that in many northeast cities along the coast, high tide flooding has increased by a factor of 10 over the last 50 years, or that wildfire is now burning twice the area in the western U.S. than it would if it weren't for a changing climate, or the fact that Hurricane Harvey, almost 40% of the rainfall associated with that record-breaking storm, would not have occurred if the same storm had happened 100 years ago. We can now connect the dots directly between people's personal experience and why a changing climate matters. Now, you're traveling a lot in the U.S. What, what do you see happening around the country? Who's responding to climate change? And like, what, what are you noticing? Below the federal administration, there are so many people and organizations who are involved. There are states and cities. There's tribal nations. There's businesses. There's even energy companies. There's a lot of farming and producing organizations. People realize today that climate is changing and that we need to prepare for a very different future. And as the National Climate Assessment concludes, we are starting already to make those changes. We are starting to adapt to the changes that we're already seeing today. And we're even starting to shift to clean energy, which, of course, would reduce and hopefully eventually eliminate our carbon emissions. But as the National Climate Assessment concludes, we are not yet doing enough. I think what happens is that people feel overwhelmed, right? Mm. I, I know we can focus a lot of energy on individual personal changes. Like not, not that these are bad, but I worry sometimes that they may distract us from larger systemic and policy changes. Mm -hmm. It isn't a case of either or. In fact, it's part of a cycle because often the most important impact of personal choices that we make are the impact that they have on our own attitudes and on, on the information that we can share, the motivation that we can share with others. So yes, I, I do reduce my carbon footprint. I think very carefully on an almost daily basis about what activities I'm doing and what the carbon footprint is. But I recognize, first of all, that we live in an imperfect world. Um, I can't even drive a fully electric vehicle here because there's no public charging stations within 200 miles. Um, but I, I do what I can. I drive a hybrid. Uh, I eat lower down the food chain. I hang out my clothes to dry. But the biggest benefit I believe that these things give me is it gives me an opportunity to have conversations with people to talk about how much I love my hybrid, um, about the fact that I do buy carbon credits from a great program called Climate Stewards to offset my footprint when I fly around the country talking to people about climate change. And the actions that I take in my daily life make me much more aware of the importance of talking about this of voting about this, and what I love most about Citizens Climate Lobby, engaging with our elected officials from across the entire political spectrum to say, hey, I'm not going to ask you if you believe in climate change as if it's some type of religion. I'm going to ask you what we can do to work together to fix this thing for the benefits of all our constituents. 
So most people listening right now are engaged and committed climate advocates, but it can get so frustrating when talking to people about climate change. It's like they almost blank out on us. And I understand the temptation to try to jar the public awake with warnings of impending doom. So what are your thoughts about using fear tactics to get people to listen up? Oh, well, we have a global weirding episode about exactly that. So if you're not familiar with Global Weirding, and I know you are, uh, check it out on YouTube. If you just Google Global Weirding or go to globalweirdingseries.com, we have a series of very short videos, like five to six minutes each that address common questions. And one of them is, is it, when it comes to climate change, should we just scare the pants off people? Is that the best way to motivate people? And the answer, according to the social science, as well as just common sense, is unfortunately not. Um, the way that we're built... Fear provokes an immediate reaction to run away faster than the bear, or at least faster than the person beside us. That's what they teach you in Canada. Um, but it's not going to sustain long-term action. For long-term action, we need hope. Rational hope, realistic hope, not Pollyanna hope. But we need hope and a vision of a better future. So absolutely, our urgency can compel us to act and to talk to people, which is the single most important thing that any of us can do as individuals. But when we talk to people, the number one most important thing to convey to people is hope. Hope for a better future. Okay, so climate change is already upon us. We are working to mitigate it, to reduce pollution, and to decarbonize the economy. Now, for a lot of people, though, they're seeing we need to focus a lot on adaptation. In your own work and your own studies, what are you seeing about the roles of individuals and groups in adapting to climate change? Mm. It's huge. I work with cities a lot, and cities really get it. They understand that cities are both uniquely vulnerable to a changing climate because of the high concentration of people in the city, um, the impervious surfaces, the urban heat island effect that make them more, more vulnerable to um, heavy rainfall and drought. But cities also have tremendous power to change. Cities can do things like, for example, acting to reduce their urban heat island effect through green roof programs and tree planting so that as climate change is getting warmer, they can actually lower the temperature of their microclimate. Cities can also do incredible things to help people reduce their carbon emissions, um, to promote uh, clean energy and smart planning, which reduces the need for energy in the first place through things like, you know, replacing highways with public transportation and making walking and biking a viable option for um, thousands and even millions of people. Cities really are, I think, the key to the future. And that's why I'm so encouraged and a lot of my hope comes from looking at what cities are doing. Now, for the folks listening who want to increase their skills in speaking about climate change, what resources do you recommend? My number one recommendation is our global weirding videos. We have over 30 of them now. They're super short. They address all of our frequently asked questions that you've probably heard from, is it too late to fix this thing? Or what is that two degree number people keep talking about? Or what's the difference between climate and weather? And we have a new series of Global Weirding episodes actually coming out based on the National Climate Assessment, where every episode talks about a different region of the US. So if you live in the Midwest, here's what's already happening where you live and here's why it matters to you. If you live in the islands or the Southwest or the coasts. Uh, then if people want more information, I would absolutely point people to the National Climate Assessment. You can find volume one online at science2017.globalchange.gov. And then you can find volume two online at nca, 
That's NCA stands for National Climate Assessment, nca2018.globalchange.gov. There's great summaries, graphics, pictures, and images explaining how climate is changing, why that matters to us, and what people are doing to respond. Wonderful. Thanks. And I will have links in the show notes for listeners. Okay, before we end, I need to ask you something. You mentioned both hope and despair. As climate advocates, I feel we get stuck on this binary. I mean, people ask me all the time, do you feel hope or despair? So what do you think about this? Like these binaries, where do you fit on the hope and despair issue? I don't really believe very strongly in binaries. Um, Another binary that we buy into is that people are either yes or no on climate change, whereas in reality, most people are sort of in the middle. I I strive to be exactly in the middle on hope and despair. Rational hope is what I'm aiming for, where I fully understand the science. I mean, I, I look at this stuff every single day. I'm just reviewing the National Climate Assessment right now, and region after region, we look at all of the negative, harmful impacts that are happening, and how can this not cause us to feel concern, anxiety, fear, and even despair? But at the same time, hope is what's going to get us to fix this thing, not despair, not fear, not panic or anxiety. So I actively go out and I look for hope. Hope isn't going to find us if we just sit here. Um, If you just scan the headlines on whatever website you prefer, Look at the headlines, they're all negative. They're all about the horrible things that have happened or the terrible things that somebody said or did. Hope is not gonna come finding us, we have to go look for it. But when we go to look for hope, it's all around us. It's in small stories of what one or another individual CCL person might share of an encouraging conversation they had that really made a difference with their elected official. It's recognizing that here in Texas, we're already getting almost 20% of our electricity from clean energy sources, and we have 25,000 jobs in the wind energy industry in in Texas alone. Um, It's looking for amazing stories like how how pay-as-you-go solar is revolutionizing sub-Saharan Africa, or how Indian coal companies are investing in solar energy. The world really is changing. It isn't changing fast enough but it is already moving in the right direction. Climate change isn't a giant boulder sitting at the bottom of a hill with hardly any hands on it that we have to push up to the top of the hill somehow before it can start rolling downhill. No, that boulder is already starting to roll downhill and it has millions of hands on it. We just have to get it moving faster. All right, yeah, let's get that ball rolling faster. Dr. Hayhoe, thank you so much for joining us today on Citizens Climate Radio. Oh, thank you so much. And thank you for everything you're doing, too. Um, I have to say that CCL specifically, the work that people are doing just patiently behind the scenes, week after week, year after year, meeting with their elected officials and, ex- and helping them understand how climate change isn't a liberal or conservative issue. It's, it's a human issue. That work is a big part of what gives me hope. You can learn more about Dr. Catherine Hayhoe at her site, katherinehayhoe.com. Also check out Global Weirding on YouTube. They're so cute and smart and short. To get links to everything we chatted about, visit citizensclimatelobby.org slash blog. Click on the Citizens Climate Radio link and go to episode 31. Oh, and it was shortly after my conversation with Dr. Hayhoe that I heard the good news about climate legislation that was introduced into the U.S. Congress. 
we celebrate your successes here at Citizens Climate Radio, and this is one of them, the Energy Innovation and Carbon Dividend Act of 2018. Congratulations to the many folks listening who have been part of the volunteer advocacy work that has led to this historic moment. Now it is time for the Art House. Dr. Jeffrey Bennett is an astronomer, public speaker, and best-selling author. He wrote The Global Warming Primer. He also authored the wildly popular and award-winning children's book series featuring Max the Dog. Dr. Jeff Bennett is committed to educating the public about science. I spend most of my time as a writer trying to educate the public and college students and children about ideas in science that I think are particularly important to our civilization and to our survival. Climate change, global warming is probably the biggest issue that I think we face, but I think that's part of the larger picture of sort of general science literacy and understanding um, how we as a species and as individuals fit into uh, this planet, to the universe, and to how we should should try to live our lives with with understanding of what they really mean and then applying that kind of understanding to all the various issues that we face in the environment with global warming with war with hatred and tolerance all of these things to me tie back to having an idea of how science really works and what it's telling us about ourselves now, as we already heard in her climate communication talks, Dr. Catherine Hayhoe makes it clear the public doesn't need more facts when it comes to climate change. Throwing more information is not helpful to them. And Jeff agrees. I think when she says they don't need more science, it's because part of the problem that we get out in the media in particular is you get inundated with scientific details. And the details are just that, they're, they're details. What very few people ever hear about is the very most basic science of global warming, you know, what I call the global warming one, two, three. We know that greenhouse gases cause planets to be warmer than they would be otherwise. We know that we're adding more greenhouse gas to Earth's atmosphere through the burning of fossil fuels and other activities. And therefore, we know it's going to warm up as a result of what we humans are doing. That's the science that everyone needs to know. And I think that Catherine Hayhoe and her presentations makes that part of it clear too. It's the We don't need to go too much beyond that though, because that's the key part that if you get that, you really got 90% of the picture. Creativity drives Jeff's desire to help the public understand science. His most inventive work comes in the full-colored illustrated children's books he creates with visual artists. While most of his illustrated children's books are about space, Jeff felt it was time to write about what was happening on Earth. Well, so what I wanted to do with The Wizard Who Saved the World is I wanted to write a book that would teach kids about global warming, help them understand that it is a serious issue, but not in a way that would scare them, instead in a way that would inspire them to say, gosh, aren't I lucky to be growing up at a time when we get to solve this problem because our solutions are going to make the world so much more of an incredible place. This boy, Diego, daydreams about being a wizard and doing all sorts of magical things. And then he learns about the problem of global warming, climate change, and starts to immediately think, well, gosh, I wish I was a wizard so that I could solve this problem with magic. 
And then when he realizes, well, you can't really do magic, he starts to think about all the ways that he might still help the world, different careers that he could do and, and so on. And at the end of the book, he's so inspired by all that, that when he runs to tell his mother and his grandmother, he runs past a mirror. And when he looks at the reflection, he sees himself as a wizard after all. So my hope is that that gets kids to understand the science, understand the topic, but also to really be focused on what am I going to do to make this world a better place and help turn this, this problem into an opportunity for, for much better than we have today. With this new topic of climate change for his children's books, Jeff realized he needed to work with a new visual artist to interpret the story. It actually took him a couple of years to find the right artist. For my um, my Max books, where he's traveling out in space, I needed space artists, right? And we have a very technical type of illustration because we want all the scenes to be scientifically accurate in terms of the colors and what you would see on different worlds and so on. But here we're dealing with something a little bit different. And I had in my mind this vision of like the wizard holding the earth in his hands, the way you see on the cover of the book. And, you know, I was looking for, for a couple of years, I was looking all over the place on the web, every place I went to see, you know, do I know an artist who, who can do what I'm imagining? And we had this open studios thing in Boulder where you can go from house to house of artists and see their work. And I happened to go into this one woman's house, actually a friend recommended that I go check it out. Her name is Roberta Collier Morales. And there she had a painting already hanging on the wall that was very, very similar in style to what I was looking for. And I asked her if she'd be interested in illustrating the book, and she said yes, and uh, that's how it came about. So I would describe to her the type of scene that I wanted on each page, and then she would make it happen. Roberta Collier Morales's illustrations are lush, warm, and vibrant. She captures the magic of Diego's imagination with images that almost seem to move on the page. The art and the text work well together. They tell a moving personal story. I got to speak briefly with Roberta Collier Morales about the book. I was highly dyslexic when I was growing up and they didn't have a word for it at the time. And so I really had this huge imagination so I related to Diego in the story because Diego was a kid with a big imagination. And then I related to the story because he was using his imagination as a tool to help him deal with his problem, which was, I want to become a wizard because I want to fix things. So I wanted to become an artist because it was a way for me to relay my message. So emotionally, I related to the character Diego because of his big imagination and how I dealt with my issues using my big imagination. The beauty of his writing is that he offers solutions to young people so they don't just walk around feeling hopeless. I think it's just masterful what he what he did and the way he did it with the sidebars, with actual facts and information along with the fantasy. So it's less scary. It's, it's more accessible to young people. 
With a problem as massive as climate change, writers need to offer meaningful solutions. Besides the obvious adjustments in our homes, what can individuals do? Well, you know, I, I know you're working with Citizens Climate Lobby, which is one of my favorite groups in the world. And of course, in my book, I talk about the science, the consequences, and the solutions. And for the solutions, I'm pushing a carbon tax, and in particular, the uh, tax and dividend type program that Citizens Climate Lobby has been advocating for for a long time. And, and I think, you know, what I would say is, is keep doing that. It may sometimes seem like Things are moving slow. Uh, I've been teaching about this topic since uh, it's actually in my class notes from 1982 that I was teaching my astronomy students about global warming. So I've been doing this for a long time. It's easy to get frustrated at the slow pace of progress, but, but don't. Keep pushing. Things will happen because they have to happen. And I'm an optimist. I believe that when something has to happen, we'll find a way to get it done. I encourage you to check out The Wizard Who Saved the World. It is available in English and in Spanish. Visit Jeff's website, jeffreybennett.com, or you can also go to bigkidscience.com. You can see more of Roberta Collier Morales' work at her site, robertacolliermorales.com. I have a full listing of these links and more in our show notes. Just visit the blog at citizensclimatelobby.org and click on the Citizens Climate Lobby option. Look for episode 31. If you have an idea for the art house, feel free to contact me. Radio at citizensclimate.org. That's radio at citizensclimate.org. Great thanks to you, Peterson Toscano, for guest hosting today's Spirit in Action. It's always a treat to have Peterson here. He'll be back again in three months, making it early May, so start counting down the days from now. We have a link to Peterson and Citizens Climate Radio on the NordenSpiritRadio.org website if you're in any doubt. Norden Spirit Radio's mission is world healing. Reach out to us at nordenspiritradio.org and let's do great things together. See you next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. Check out all things Spirit in Action on northernspiritradio.org. Guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice, with every